Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 5 The Life and Times of Emperor Kammu. I realize we have already covered a lot of events from Emperor Kammu's reign, but he was such a dynamic and active sovereign that it would be ironically tragic if the context and scope of the accomplishments of his reign were overshadowed by the capital relocation to Heian-kyo. It will be some time before we encounter another monarch who so vigorously and successfully pursued his vision for Japan, and I thought he deserved a special episode all for himself. It's worthwhile to remember that Kamutenno became part of the line of succession under circumstances which are suspicious at best. Prince Yamabe, as he was then called, probably played some hidden role in the removal of his younger brother, Crown Prince Osabe, in the scandal of 772, which stripped Empress Inoue of her title and removed her son Osabe from the succession under accusations of targeting Emperor Konin with witchcraft. Regardless of any unsavory tactics he may have used to arrange his own elevation to crown prince, Yamabe showed all the signs of becoming an active, charismatic sovereign who was guided by Confucian philosophy and capable of bending the court to his will. When he took the throne in 781, Emperor Kammu inherited a host of massive structural problems which Konin Tenno had not been able to resolve in his lifetime. The old emperor had initiated some reforms which limited the political reach of the Buddhist establishment, and Kammu Tenno certainly intended on continuing this trend, but he turned his attention first to the Daigaku, the imperial university. You may recall that Kukai later wrote a book called The Sango Shiki, documenting several imaginary conversations which analyzed Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. While Kobodaishi's conclusion was that Buddhism was superior, Emperor Kamu clearly preferred Confucianism for matters of state. When he reformed the curriculum of the university, this did not merely prop up a doctrine that elevated his own status as sovereign. It ensured that tomorrow's leaders would be guided by the same principles he revered. It was not that he was anti-Buddhist, rather that he believed that Buddhism should serve the state and not the other way around. Thus, the rather drastic announcement in 784 that the capital would be not only relocated but newly built from the ground up was not a referendum against Buddhism at large, but a realignment of its proper place within the organs of government. You may recall that Emperor Shomu had tried to relocate the capital several times but was stymied by uncooperative Kuge and his own passion for Buddhist practice above the affairs of state. Emperor Kamu not only succeeded in relocating the capital away from the Nara schools, but his reign even survived an aborted initial attempt at building the capital of Nagaoka-kyo. When Fujiwara Tanetsugu was assassinated, Emperor Kamu did not spare his younger brother, Prince Sawara, from the consequences of his role in the plot. The construction at Nagaoka-kyo 
was costly and constantly damaged by flooding and other local disasters. A lesser emperor would have called the project off entirely and remained in Heijou-kyo, especially when it was so widely believed that the ghost of his late brother was the cause of the setbacks. That Kamu Tenno was able to press ahead is a testament to his indomitable will and his belief that the state must be freed from the yoke of the Nara schools. The disasters that plagued Nagaoka-kyo's construction weren't the only setbacks suffered by Emperor Kamu's court. The war with the Eimishi continued to drain the imperial treasury while offering only humiliation in return. When the protracted conflict led to large-scale desertion and draft-dodging, Kamutenno made a critical decision in reforming the nature of armed forces by relegating the responsibility for defense to the provinces. I feel we've exhausted the pros and cons of this particular decision, so it will suffice to say here that Emperor Kamu was not afraid to alter long-standing traditions in favor of building the powerful central government which he believed was necessary to national harmony. While he deserves credit for moving the capital in spite of objections from the Nara schools and their allies among the Kuge, it's also fair to note that he was incredibly lucky with regards to timing. Shortly before the big move, news came that the Imperial Army operating in Tohoku had scored a major victory against the Aimishi. Some of the more reluctant courtiers may have been convinced that the new capital was a providential idea and that the victories were a seal of divine approval. Emperor Kamu's amicable relationship with Sai Cho shows that he did have a spiritual side. In particular, he was interested in the potential of unifying Buddhism and putting an end to the various dueling schools which so often sought favor and political clout over their rivals. Considering the latter-day rivalry between Tendai and Shingon, this may have been a naive hope on Kamu Tenno's part, but it's hard not to give him credit for trying. But even a dynamic, energetic ruler like Emperor Kamu has his limits. The Handen Shujo system of field allotment had been flagging for many years before he came to the throne, but his action of doubling the years between reallotment ensured that this system would continue to decline and the Shoens rise in its place. And while Heian-kyo was a grand and impressive capital city, it was far larger than it needed to be to accommodate the Kuge who ran the various bureaus. Parts of it would gradually fall into disrepair as state revenues shrank and building maintenance was deprioritized. The treasury was probably Kamutenno's biggest blind spot. Later this season, we'll discuss the drastic measures the court would need to take in order to make up for regular budget shortfalls, many of which eroded their own authority in the long term and practically guaranteed that a more organized class would seize the reins of government for themselves. At the same time, it is not as though the central government collapsed immediately upon Emperor Kamu's death. While some of his solutions did lead to bigger problems down the road, there is no reason future officials and emperors couldn't right the ship themselves. The truth is, Kamu Tenno was probably the most able and competent of any sovereign who ruled during the Heian period, 
And while some of the emperors who followed wanted to reform structural problems that plagued the court, few would be able to match his capacity for political domination. Toward the end of his reign, Emperor Kammu's court finally had a legitimate scandal. Fujiwara Kusuko, wife of a middle counselor and daughter to the late Fujiwara Tanetsugu, was accused of having an affair with Crown Prince Ate, Kammu's oldest son and heir to the throne. She was sent away from the capital as a result, and her marriage to the middle counselor probably ended here, though I could not find definite confirmation of this. This is not the last we will hear of Fujiwara Kusuko. She will indeed be back. Emperor Kammu died in 806. His health had rapidly been failing the last few years, which was part of the reason that Saicho's Tendai Lotus School was not fully granted official status at the time. Kammu Tenno reigned for 25 years, the longest contiguous reign since Emperor Shomu. In many ways, Emperor Kammu was an ideal Confucian ruler, active, engaged, and charismatic. Ironically, his reign and the reigns of those who came after seemed to validate legalism's primary criticisms of Confucian ideals. It was all fine and well to have a sovereign who cared about improving the nation and the lives of the people, but what if the sovereign was lazy, tyrannical, or uninterested in governance? What protected the people of Japan from ambitious courtiers determined to wrap their fingers around the levers of power? As the Heian period will come to show, nothing. One of the Kuge clans would eventually rise above the others in the raw terms of political power, setting children upon the chrysanthemum throne so that they may act as the de facto caretakers of the state, while disillusioned groups in the provinces start to wonder how this system benefits them and why they need to pay tribute to those who shrug when disasters come their way. Next time, we'll discuss the first of several disasters to beset Kamu's descendants when Emperor Heize takes the throne. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. 